a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I am joined today by my right-thinking friend, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Peace and joy be unto you. (laughs) It is the will of Landrew. I gotta, I gotta tell our listeners uh, when 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 I first contacted Eric today, uh, the, the moment he answered, he asked, "Are you of the body?" And I didn't know what to say for a second because it, it took me back so quickly. Well, yeah, we're talking about for people listening who don't know, uh, one of the old classic Star Trek episodes called "Return of the Archons." And uh, I have to say, as a kid, you know, I loved that show. And even though the special effects were cheesy, some of the storylines were actually quite profound and thought provoking. And the reference, the, uh, the, the reference to Landru and being of the body has to do with this episode where the crew visits this strange planet that's governed by this computer that keeps the populace in this hypnotic religious trance. And they all walk around going, peace and joy be unto you. Are you of the body? It is the will of Landru. And obviously we can see the same thing going on today with this sickness psychosis that so many people in this country are afflicted with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, let's. Where do we begin? You've had you've had a number of terrific articles. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, your your latest uh, uh, diaper report. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you you mentioned some observations there that I think are really worth considering. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm not alone in my observations. I, I think probably everybody who's listening to this has noticed this strange pirouette that's occurred over just about the last week or two. Uh, where, uh, just like that, as if somebody threw a light switch, the diapers are coming off, the face diapers are being removed, and life appears to be resuming a kind of normalcy. You know, you can walk and you can shop and you can go into places. Very few places now are demanding that you put on the holy rag. Uh, And you wonder about that. You know, what's going on with that? And I think what's going on with that is several things. Uh, Obviously, there's been this great push to get everybody needled, and lots of people have received their holy anointing, as I put it. And these anointed are now walking around without their holy vestments on. And that's, I guess, okay. But what worries me is that uh, the truly fanatic religious nuts out there of this, this COVID mania uh, aren't going to abide the possibility that people like you and I, the heretics who, who never wore the holy vestment in the first place, can now sort of go about our business without being noticed. So I think this is temporary. I think this is a lull, um, a trough between the waves, and that the next thing that's coming is that new signs will go up saying that you must provide proof of your holy anointing to enter within, or you must wear the holy vestment. I'm, I'm certain that's coming. I don't believe that this is just going away just like that. No, and, and depending on where people live, I've seen some of the, the propaganda, and I'm not using that to, in a pejorative sense, but um, I've seen some of the propaganda just simply come right out and say, look, this is you. Fully vaccinated, no mask, smiling, happy, able to access yep. all areas of life. And this is the person without a mask. And it's, you know, a frowny face behind a mask. And yep. I have to stay home and I can't be yep. around people. and Nothing is available to me. I, the conditioning, I think, has begun. And I think you're right on the money to call it yep. out for what it is. Yeah, and, uh, you know, to, to further drive home the point that this is a religious mania, if it were not, those who've decided to receive their holy anointing would be content with their having been anointed. But 
uh, I believe that they are not going to be content until everybody is anointed. There's a punitive aspect to this. They can't stand the idea that other people haven't bought into their faith, even though if you, you know, look at it from a supposedly rational point of view, well, I got my shot, so now I'm safe. Why do I care whether anybody else has gotten their shot or is wearing their diaper? But obviously they care very much that other people are also wearing a diaper and also getting the needle, which, which gives you an indication about what this is truly all about. It's about mass conformity, uh, and it's mass conformity that's enforced by force, and that's, I think, unfortunately, what's coming. You know, I had the time. I had some time over the the Memorial Day weekend to uh, to spend some time traveling, and and I spent a fair amount of time visiting a couple of different uh, national monuments and otherwise, uh, you know, federally managed um, properties. And it was very curious to see. Not only, of course, are the mask mandates in effect for all federal employees, but there's a big sign on the door that says only fully vaccinated individuals mm-hmm. may enter this facility unmasked. Now, nobody mm-hmm. was checking. So, you know, of course, being fully wink, wink, uh, you know, uh, vaccinated. Yeah. I, I just went in and went about my business and had a great time. But I was wondering in the back of my mind, how long? until we have somebody, you know, wanting to check. And I assume it's going to be some kind of a little digital card on your phone or something. I just need to scan the QR code here to make sure that uh, you've, you know, got the jab. Yeah, I experienced a microcosm of that, which I wrote about in the article. Um, A couple of weeks back, uh, I was able to start going to my local crunchy Whole Foods place called Earth Fair. And previously, for many months, it was impossible to get into that place unless you wore a holy rag. And then all of a sudden, you could. And that was great. I was able to go there and get things like grass-fed beef and, and whatnot. Well, last Friday, I guess it was, I, I went there. And all of a sudden, the, the big placard that had been removed was back out in front with the Stalinist letters about how you must wear a mask. You walk in, and they had more signs. And I went in, but within a few minutes, I was accosted by an acolyte of the sickness cult who tried to make me put on the face diaper, which, of course, I didn't. But anyway, fast forward three days. I went to the same store just yesterday, and now all the signs are gone. There's nothing there at all, and you can go in again. And that, to me, explains what this dynamic is and how it's going to play out. Uh, probably we got some pushback from people who've been uh, wholly anointed, saying, well, why do I have to wear this, this, this stupid mask since I've been vaccinated? And they can't afford to lose the customers, so they gave in for now. But I think the religious pressure has not gone away And the next thing that's going to come to pass is just as you say, you're going to have to provide some sort of proof, whether it's a physical piece of paper that says you've been anointed or some kind of even creepier digital form of it that you have to carry around in your phone. You know, something I've observed, too, and I know you have seen this as well because I've seen you comment on it. As I go about, the signs are they're troubling. But, you know, I expect it. I understand. There's a certain authoritarianism that seems to creep in at the corporate level and, and, and trickle on down. Eric, the thing that, that uh, really concerns me, I mean to my bones, is the people who are still out there um, masked up. And, and mm-hmm. I, I'm making a subjective call here. I see fear in their eyes. I see, oh, yeah. I see terrible fear. And that's the part that concerns me is we have a segment of the population who has been so thoroughly conditioned to view anybody without a mask as an existential threat that I have no doubt if, if the hammer were to come down hard and they were told, hey, listen, you need to drop a dime on your neighbor. If they're being noncompliant mm-hmm. in any way, these are the folks who would be doing it and doing it with a clear conscience. 
Without question. Uh, when I was at Earth Fair the other day, there was an employee there who not only had the diaper on, had the face shield on. And I looked at this woman and thought to myself, on the one hand, I feel great pity and sadness because clearly she's terrified. She must get up every day uh, in mortal fear of having to go out amongst you know, the unwashed, the people who are going to kill her because they're not wearing this thing on her, on their, on her face. But then uh, I, I go on to think, well, just as you thought, this person, if empowered, you know, if, if given the ability to do something to me and to other people like me, to you, uh, who refuse to, to participate in this insanity, she would do it in a minute. Because to her, we are existential threats. They have been conditioned to the same degree that people in Germany regarded Jews as an existential threat to them. And that's scary. I want to take a little sideline here, since you mentioned that. Why is it? that no one is allowed to point out that uh, the direction we are going mirrors the same direction that other totalitarian regimes have gone. Anybody who brings up, well, gee, are we going to be forced to wear, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a thing on our sleeve showing that we're vaccinated or not vaccinated? Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, you know, the, the contrived outrage masters step, oh, you can't compare mm-hmm. that to the Holocaust. There's no comparison. Whatever. This is true on the left and the right, but I think, mm-hmm. they're, I think they're being willfully obtuse to not recognize we're taking steps in the same direction, even if it is baby oh, I don't think steps. They're being willfully, I don't think they're being willfully obtuse. I think that they are well aware that the parallels are, in, are entirely legitimate. You're, you're dealing in both cases with, the, the first of all, the marginalization of a segment of the society, and then a demonization of that segment as a physical threat to the rest of the population. It's exactly the same thing. And the fact that it hasn't yet led to people being hauled away and dragged out of their homes at gunpoint, uh, that's exactly why that comparison has to be brought up, because this is where that sort of thing inevitably leads. And I'm just going to add one addendum. That that hauled off at gunpoint hasn't happened in America yet, or at least that I've seen. I've seen it happen, though, in Canada and Australia. Absolutely. And, And Canada, I mean, of all places, Canada and Australia and New Zealand, places like that, which used to be considered pretty benign, laid back places. And now you're exactly right. People are dragged away out of their homes at gunpoint. Their kids are taken away from them at gunpoint because parents have decided that they don't want their kids to be psychologically abused by putting on this thing over their face, much less uh, having something injected into their bodies. And that's probably where this thing is going to head here. You know, parents who say, you know, wait a minute, I don't want my kid to be injected with this experimental whatever it is that has already killed a number of people. My kid's healthy. My kid is at no threat uh, of of being killed by the Rona. I'm certainly not going to force my child to be uh, put at risk of this vaccine or whatever it is. Hold that thought. We'll be back in just a moment with Eric Peters. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And I have Eric on each week. And Eric, I consider uh, our conversations, this is a needed reality supplement that I I gratefully take each week (laughs) to keep me in touch. And Mm -hmm. I I don't use that term lightly. I mean, um, I think think it was Claire Wolf um, who who had had coined that phrase, you know, a reality Mm -hmm. supplement. But... Um, I see a lot of people untethered from reality, and I'm not saying that from the high and mighty post of an I see right. what they don't, but I make a very conscious effort to try to figure out what is real, what is not, and people who don't 
make that effort or aren't willing to, to do a little bit of digging to figure it out would be surprised how easy it is to be misled. Oh, without question. And I think a key to that is to not give in to fear and hysteria, which all too many Americans have given into, and instead pause, breathe, reflect, think. Find out what the facts are before you go off half-cocked. Unfortunately, uh, things have changed in this country to the point where it's this 24-cycle, uh, 24-7 cycle of panic and hysteria. You know, it, it began long before the Rona fever. If you think about even such relatively mundane things as watching the weather, it was always whatever. Oh, my God, there's a gigantic hurricane front coming, and there's going to be catastrophe. You know, they've <laughs> catastrophized everything. You know, it's all part of this action news thing that began back in the 70s. This did not happen overnight. It's a series of progressions that reached a sort of a critical mass in our time now where people are in this constant state of nervous tension and ready for whatever the bad news du jour happens to be. I want to build on something we discussed in the last segment, and, and that is, you know, let's suppose that this this classification of vaccinated and unvaccinated mm-hmm. of society moves forward. It's very clear, at least it should be for anybody who was paying attention in the last year or so, that uh, this could be weaponized very quickly to keep people from living a life, you know, accessing the things they really need. I'm talking something mm-hmm. as simple as shopping for groceries. You had a recent sure. article on backyard independence. I thought yeah. it was one of the most constructive and motivating things I've read in a while. Talk to mm-hmm. me about uh, what, what prompted that article. Well, let's set the predicate. We already know, because it's already happened, that we could be debarred from engaging in normal commerce, going to stores to get things that we need, and so on, unless we bend knee to these government and corporate tyrannies that are being imposed on us. So I think it would be prudent of prudent and behoove us to decouple ourselves from this oppressive system to the extent that we can. And one way that we can do that, one way that I've done that, is to do things like get a small flock of chickens, and I have ducks too, that can provide you with uh, high-quality protein right there on your, you know, your own property so that you don't have to go to the store to get that. And, of course, people can do gardens, and you can do a variety of other things to increase your own independence so as to not be dependent on these centralized controls, control structures that are uh, being used to systematically oppress us and take away our liberty. I don't remember who said it, but I have seen a meme a few times over the last few years that says that one of the most revolutionary acts that a person can engage in is to grow their own food. Your thoughts? Absolutely. Well, it's absolutely true. Uh, Not only in the sense that you have food uh, independent of uh, these centralized control structures, but frankly, another aspect of this that I think people listening to this might want to look into is that the food that you grow is probably going to be a lot healthier than what you get uh, through these centralized control structures. They're literally poisoning our food now with all the stuff that they put into it and spray on it uh, such that it makes you sick. You can improve your health. And again, being healthy uh, immunizes you to a a great extent from some of these centralized control, control structures. If you don't need medical care, for example, you don't need to go hand in hat in hand and, and face diaper on going to the doctor's office to get a pill that you no longer need. Instead, uh, you know, you eat well at home, and, you know, you connect with other people. You connect with your family. You connect with people in your community, and all of those things, I think, 
are extremely healthy and might get America back on track again. Something that you show in your article that to me, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. It's a picture of someone holding up a dollar bill, and I don't know how many millions of uh, Venezuelan, what are they, bolivars <laughs> yeah. or whatever? Yes. Tell me about that picture. What does that illustrate? Well, uh, it's a reference, it's a visual reference to the hyperinflation that's occurred in Venezuela. And of course, hyperinflation is when the currency is devalued by printing uh, more of it, such that it wipes out people's savings that they have in the currency. Um, One way to hedge against that is to make an investment in things that are durable and tangible that allow you to be self-sufficient. So now might be a really good time to buy the material things that you might need toward that end. I'm considering going out and getting myself at least a 500-gallon propane tank uh, for my place so that I've got my propane here and I'm not as dependent on having a truck come by uh, once a month or so to fill up my much smaller cylinder that they own. If I own it, I'm in control of it, and I've got a better means of finding the best price. And I've got land so I can cut wood on my place. I've got my chickens. I've got a garden. All those sorts of things help to make you more independent of all of these things that are taking away our freedoms. Now, anybody who would be tempted to say, well, this is, that sounds like a Luddite kind of mindset, mm-hmm. you're not rejecting technology, you're not rejecting the things that make life worthwhile, but you are definitely hedging your bets that if someone wanted to try to squeeze you and make mm-hmm. you conform through uh, withholding you know, basic things like food and, and warmth and things like that, you could still do a workaround. Yeah, it's not Ludditeism. Uh, you know, I'm not advocating that people become Amish. What I am suggesting is that... The price of specialization, the price of of being dependent on these vast, faceless corporate control structures. You you can't even speak to a human being anymore when you have a problem with a corporation. It's always some phone tree automated AI thing. It's dehumanizing. It takes away our self-mastery, our control over our own lives. And that's what I'm talking about. Uh, I have no issue with, uh, with technology. I have no issue... Uh, with being able to go to the store. But I do have issues with uh, all of these conditions being imposed on people as a condition of being permitted to participate in what was heretofore normal life and has become increasingly abnormal. What can we do? We can't really fight against these gigantic corporations directly. What we can do is, is take control of our own lives again and try to ride this out until some sense of sanity is restored. There are two words I want to throw into this conversation here. Uh, The first is one that we are all very familiar with because we've watched it happen over the last year, centralization. If you can't see Mm -hmm. now that there are people in power trying to centralize and consolidate their control over you, um, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's it's so obvious. You, however, mentioned the antidote, which is decentralization. Let's talk a couple examples of, of what that could look like beyond just having a backyard flock. Well, just being in touch with people who you know personally in your local area that you can communicate with directly. And uh, that's the preface. I wanted to just get back to your point about centralization. Centralization can be expressed in another way. And I wrote an article about this titled, One Size Fits All. That's what you get with centralization. Everybody has to do the same thing. Everybody has to accept the same terms and conditions. There are fewer alternatives, fewer choices. We need more choices and more alternatives, and I think you have that when you deal on a smaller scale level with people in your own community, with independently owned businesses rather than these gigantic chains, where you can talk to not just the guy who is the manager, but the owner of the store and say, you know what, I really appreciate that you're not forcing people to present proof of having been needled or to wear a face diaper. Thank you. I'm, you know, I'm happy to bring you my business. 
that that hits home a lot more than when you go to a Walmart and you know you tell the uh, the minimum wage clerk the same thing because they're not in a position to uh, go one way or the other with what you what you're saying. You know, at the time of this show, we are just a little over a month away from Independence Day. And yeah. I know, I know, Uncle Joe was uh, uh, talking about well, now if you're good and you get the jab and wear your mask and socially mm-hmm. distance, you know, maybe we'll celebrate and roast a hot dog on July Fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see in in your writings, and I think just in the mindset that you're pro- portraying here, we don't have to wait for permission. Free people don't wait to declare themselves into, or don't wait for someone to tell them it's okay to be independent. They declare their independence and they seize it and go about their lives. Absolutely. In fact, uh, historically speaking, Independence Day uh, was not just about the United States or the colonies that were the United States, the independent states that were the colonies um, departing from the British Commonwealth. It was about individual independence, and I think that's what we need to begin to reassert. Eric, it's great, as always, to visit with you. I'll have links to all the stories we've talked about. Have a wonderful week. Likewise. You too, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I have a little bit of an apology I need to offer. I know I probably should have let off with this, but I'm going to go ahead and just uh, get this off my chest. It's kind of been troubling me. You may have noticed, if you're a regular listener, that uh, new episodes have been a little bit spotty here of late. Have you picked up on that? Have you thought, man, this is deja vu. Brian's saying the same amazing stuff, the same inspiring, you know, bring a tear to your eye commentary that I swear I heard, you know, a short time ago. And the truth of the matter is, yes, there have been some best-of shows running, as well as, uh, you know, there have been a few gaps in uh, new episodes. And I, I want to assure you, contrary to rumors uh, that, uh, that otherwise would suggest, it's because he's just too lazy to record one. Actually, I've been in the middle of a great adventure. And uh, the great adventure has been uh, moving my family to a, a new compound. Now, I'm just saying that because I'm sure at some point someone will say, well, that's... That's what he's doing. It's, it's a compound. Um, no, I, I moved my family to a different state. It's one where, uh, fortunately, we have plenty of family members and um, actually a place where I've lived before. And believe it or not, I know this is going to shock you, um, moving is extremely time-consuming. It's very stressful. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a big challenge. And so uh, I've also had to do something which I never thought I would see myself do, and that is dismantle my studio entirely. And then have to resort to backup equipment and, and my backup system to, uh, to get the job done. Because I'm all about getting it done. And so that's, that's what I've been doing. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm sitting at my mom's dining room table as, as I am preparing this broadcast and, and producing this broadcast. It's not an ideal situation, but <clears throat> we will be in our new home here in a couple of weeks and uh, things, things will settle down. But... What a ride it has been for the last little bit. I've had, I've had numerous people tell me, hey, do you realize moving is right up there in like the top five stressful events? You know, uh, loss of job, death of a spouse, a divorce, losing a child, moving. I mean, I, some of those things are like truly, you know, earth-ending, you know, earth-shattering kind of changes. This has been a big one, but 
I, I'm not telling you this so you can sit there and think, oh, well, finally, he's found his victimhood. Hey, good for you. Because <laughs> I'm not somebody who believes that uh, victimhood is a virtue. I do believe that many of us do find ourselves victims of circumstances or sometimes of uh, other people's malevolence from time to time. That's not the point. The point is, I'm not here to wallow in uh, the misery that is uh, packing up all your stuff and moving. But I have a couple of thoughts I want to share, and this is mainly just to get them off my chest. I don't know if you can relate to them. If you, if you can, great. If not, skip this, move on by, you know, and, and you know, leave it for somebody who can. This is, this is the biggest, most painful realization that I've had here in the last few weeks. And that is, um, for all the stuff that I have, my stuff owns me, not the other way around. And as anyone who has moved within recent memory can attest, the second you start to pack up and move, the, that's the moment you become aware of just how much you have accumulated. Now, in my case, this is a, this is a partnership. This is a joint effort. My wife and I both have, have been accumulators. And wherever we happen to, to stay, whether we've been in a home for three years or for 12 years or for four years or you know, nine years, whatever the case may be, it adds up. And I, you know, I'm a preparedness kind of guy. So there's a lot of my stuff that, uh, that leans towards, well, this may come in handy someday. We may need this solar oven. We may need this water filter and that sort of stuff. And the truth of the matter is we might. So I'm not knocking preparedness. But that's not the stuff that was really causing me stress. It was just all the little things, the, the knickknacks, and, and there's a lot of sentimental items and books. Oh, my goodness, the books. And I hope you don't think I'm too weak when I tell you this, but I have I, I can't remember a time when I felt more overwhelmed by the circumstances of just having to bring it all out, categorize it. Do we keep it? Do we need it? Can we donate it? Do we just get rid of it? That has been truly one of the great stressful experiences of my life. I mean, I'm I'm kind of proud to tell you I've lost some weight. If if you uh, knew me, if you saw me on a regular basis, you'd probably say, wow, you look like you've lost some weight. You'd probably also notice, hey, your beard looks a little grayer, <laughs> and, and, and it probably is. But here's my point. There's an awful lot of focus on material things, and this is where I'm going to get really abstract for a moment. Much of the script that is handed to us in life tells us that uh, that's how you measure how you're doing in life is, you know, what kind of stuff do you have? For instance, the stuff you drive, what does it say about you? You know, is it a Mercedes E-Class? Because uh, that's some pretty nice stuff. But what is it supposed to communicate? Is your stuff supposed to say, hey, look at my house. I'm in the fancy pants part of town. It's this much square footage. It appraises for this value, which, by the way, they used to mean a lot. But half million dollar homes are becoming a dime a dozen. <laughs> and sometimes they're just not that spectacular because the real estate market's on fire. But... Have you ever stopped to think about how much your stuff defines your being, your success? People should be able to look at me and know at a glance why that's a successful guy there. His clothes, you know, the stuff that hangs in his closet, should proclaim, look at the material success he's achieved. And I guess this is the point I'm getting to. How much of what we call success is material-based? In other words, how much of it is just simply a matter of you know, people should be able to look at this and maybe feel a little uh, twinge of jealousy, but at the very least, they should appreciate, wow, that guy's got nice stuff. 
And I don't mean to rain on anybody's parade. This is purely for my own benefit. So if, if you're in stuff accumulation mode, hey, you know, motor on, do what you got to do. But I have come away with this determination that uh, I never want to be as owned by my stuff as I have felt here in the last couple of weeks. Now, I'm not quite, quite ready to become a minimalist. And there's a terrific documentary. I think it may still be on Netflix. It's called The Minimalists. And it uh, centers around the lives of a number of people who caught on to something. And, and you can say it's a conspiracy theory if you want. I know it's, it's easy to dismiss things as well. <laughs> That's tinfoil hat territory. Um, I don't think this is. I think a lot of what we are told by the advertising establishment, I'm just going to call them Madison Avenue, but uh, what drives a lot of commerce is the need for, you need to have this. And, and in fact, it goes beyond that. It's, it's not just a matter of, hey, it, you know, you need to have this because this will genuinely help your life. It's more a matter of, if you don't have this, if you don't brush your teeth with this kind of toothpaste or this kind of toothbrush, this sonic, you know, toothbrush or whatever, you are a broken human being. You're less than what you should be or could be or, or how others should perceive you. And I want you to just think about that for a moment. What kind of a message does that send to your psyche? Without this, you are less. You don't have fresh minty breath. Your teeth don't sparkle in the sunlight. My point is simply, it's so easy to get our hearts set on stuff. And yet, here's this is the, the realization that I'm having. None of it uh, gets to go with us. When our lives are done, okay, let's just, you know, skip ahead. I know nobody wants to contemplate the day that one day there's going to be a group of people gathered. Maybe, you know, many of them weeping, perhaps a few cheering. Mr. Snarley, I'm looking your direction. Um, but they're going to they're gonna be celebrating the life that you have lived or the life that I have lived. What is it that you want them to focus on? Because I'm pretty sure I really, I don't. I don't think it's really going to matter to anybody. Well, you know, it was really nice. He was in that that 4,300-square-foot home at one point. It was so beautiful with the travertine marble. <laughs> I, no. What's going to matter is how have you impacted the lives of people around you? Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, this, is, this is the call. You and I need to, we need to drop everything, sell whatever we have, buy a beautiful saffron-colored robe, and become, you know, monks. I don't think we need to become Buddhist monks or Shaolin monks for that matter. We, we just need to, we need to understand that stuff, while helpful and sometimes making our lives easier, can very quickly become more of a burden than a blessing. And right now, I am neck deep in that more of a burden phase of understanding you know, what my stuff is and has been doing to me. And I don't like a lot of what I've learned here. And it's, it's not that, uh, oh, I was just more, 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 got to have more. It's, that's the, the crazy thing about it. It's not like something people could look at and say, wow, dude, you have a problem. You got to, I mean, okay, hoarders, maybe. But uh, I'm not quite to hoarder status, but getting close enough that you don't even realize it until you have to pack it all up and move it somewhere. And it seems like the more you start to drag out and categorize and get rid of and organize, the more you find. I swore up and down for the last couple of weeks. The Bermuda Triangle and everything that it has ever swallowed in the last, uh, you know, uh, 70 years, 80 years, is somehow mysteriously reappearing wherever I happen to be. At any rate, I have found it uh, not only a bit discouraging, but I've also found it very enlightening. 
And here's, here's my promise to you. I'm going to be less dependent on stuff. I want to be a more streamlined individual. I want to focus more on impact. This program is part of that impact. And I want to thank you for being a part of that. Of all the stuff that I have, my connection with you is one of the most important things because that one will last. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, I feel so much better getting that off my chest. Look, unfortunately, my wife and kids, a few close friends, have probably been the ones receiving the greatest benefit of me going, this sucks when when it comes to packing things up and moving, only because the job never seems to be really done. In fact, in in the back of my mind, I kind of have this this sort of vision that uh, maybe hell isn't really, you know, burning in a lake of eternal fire with demons tormenting you with pitchforks. Maybe it's just... This this gigantic moving van that you have to fill up, and there's just there's never an end to the stuff, and you can never get everything in it. And, and worse than that, when you do finally get it fully loaded, at least as much as you can, so you have to leave some of your stuff. Um, hell is then sitting in that moving van in non-moving traffic, hour after hour, as you proceed towards some still yet unrealized destination. Okay, perhaps I've said too much. I know any, any psychologists listening to this program right now are going, okay, taking notes. <laughs> this, this is one for the textbooks. All right. So I'm going to move on to something a little more useful. I've been sharing with you over the weeks Paul Rosenberg's um, fallacies, essays. And he has such a terrific take on the world. This is the conclusion to his essays that I'm going to share. And he explains two things that lie beneath everything that he has covered thus far. Now, there are links within the show notes that uh, will, will help you to find this. If you, if you can't wait for that, just go to freemansperspective.com, freemansperspective.com. Sign up for his newsletter. It'll land in your email inbox at least once a week. So here are, here are two of the things that he has been trying to communicate through this many, many weeks of essays. <clears throat> the first is truth at the center. He says, when discussing critical, clear thinking, which I'm going to point out, that is the goal of this program, to promote critical thinking. Not not agreement with the host or even the guests, but clear, critical thinking, the most important thing we can do during times of crises. He says, when discussing this, or however we might describe this effort, what what we're really doing is discovering what is real. We're trying to see and accept reality and grasp it as it is. And of course, we're especially trying to avoid being drawn away from reality because the world we live in happens to be filled with such efforts. He says whether by training, indoctrination, malintent, or even by accident, the user of any fallacy or word-borne trick is trying to make you not see reality, either to see it as something that it isn't or to imagine that something unreal truly is real, which brings us back to the ancient question, what is truth? Now, that's a question Paul Rosenberg says I feel like I need to answer because I want you to know how I use the concept. True things correspond to reality. A true statement is one that accurately reflects reality. He says, and this, I think, should always remain in the back of our minds. When we see or we hear something new, the thing we compare it to, our fundamental point of reference should be what is real. Humans have been easy to lead astray because they've substituted other things for their central concern. So here's the short list of replacements that we sometimes use 
in, uh, in, in place of reality. Things like, what will my boss do if I decide X is a good idea? What will my spouse say if I say Y is a good idea? I already believe something about this subject. Can I still believe it if I agree? Will believing this idea mean that I was wrong in the past? Can I get in trouble by believing this? Now, he says, assuredly, there are other questions like this, but none of them are fit to serve as our first and central question. That honor should be held only by what is real. Some of these questions have practical value, but they're secondary at best. They should be entertained only after the fundamental question has been honestly and separately addressed. If we allow anything to be more central to us than reality, he says, we doom ourselves for, to being forever manipulable, confused, overloaded, and uncertain about our very selves. Now, saying that putting ahead of the truth, that putting anything ahead of the truth, rather, would leave us overloaded might seem counterintuitive, but he says in reality the opposite is true. See, our purpose in critical thinking isn't hypervigilance. It's comfort and clarity. People tend to fear truth because they imagine it will expose their self-contradictions, that it will be painful, and it will require them to expend lots of energy fixing everything. But he says that's not only false, but it's self-damning. He says, remember, please, that our characters are very substantially self-made. We carry a certain genetic inheritance. We carry the effects of our environment, but that's not remotely all. Our characters may rest upon those things, but they are built. They're constructed by the choices we make in this life. And he says, and this is crucial. We continuously build our future character with the choices we make every day. Now, he says an entire book could be written to work out all the fine points of that statement. But in the end, it would stand as essentially correct. We are self-made characters, or as it's been said, we are self-made souls. And so when we use what is true as our central focus, we tend to build straight, strong, and efficiently. But he says if we substitute anything else for what's real or what's true, we leave our proper foundations and build crooked, unsound structures. More than that, we build structures that require continual effort just to keep them functional. So if we want to minimize the energy we spend on dealing with difficult choices, with manipulations and confusions, we'll get precisely that by keeping what's true as our central point of reference. Life becomes easier for us when we do that, he says, not harder. Now, he says, I'm speaking in metaphors, you know, structures, foundations, repairs, simply because I lack a better vocabulary. But he says, while some future philosopher will certainly be able to explain this with more precision, the concept itself won't change very much. If our goal is comfort, safety, and efficiency, truth as our central touchstone will deliver it to us. Now, he also points out that words are, at this stage of human development, uh, kind of a mixed blessing. To be sure, they're magnificent tools, allowing us to communicate quickly and in great detail. A human life without words at this point is barely imaginable. The bad part about words, however, is that they've also been the mechanism of our destruction. He says, pick your bloody dictator, then try to imagine them destroying what they did without words. Imagine the worst fraud or con artist and try to imagine them ruling you without words. But on top of that, he says, is the fact that we, that even our self-deceptions, rather, operate by words. When we rational, rationalize away good habits, responses, or ideas, words are the central tools by which we do so. And so, words are very commonly the tools of our undoing. Like the old proverb says, truth was too heavy a burden for men to bear, so they were given language to obscure it. Now, he says, at first, that would seem to disagree with his statement above, which was, you know, truth is central. What is real? 
And he says that by orienting, tr- orienting by truth reduces the difficulty in our eternal lives. That's uh, eter- internal lives, rather. He says it sounds like uh, this would, would contradict it, but he says that's not really what it's saying. So to put it more precisely, here's how he would render that proverb. Truth was too heavy a burden for men to bear in their existing state, meaning with crooked foundations. So they were given language to obscure it. In any event, he says, humans do obscure truth with language. It's a very old problem, and so words can be a hazard to us. They are imperfect containers and vessels for thoughts, but they are probably, or presently anyway, the best we have. So, jumping back to the good side of words, he says it's important to note that words used carefully allow us to blow past emotional blockages. Words precisely used bypass fear and other difficult feelings, allowing us to arrive at clear and dispassionate conclusions. This has been of almost incalculable benefit to us. And so, words are among the finest tools the human race possesses. We should be deeply grateful for them. But he says they can also be used against us, and so it fail, It falls rather to us to recognize and reject such uses, uses to be able to transcend them. At stake here is not only our happiness, but the future happiness of mankind. But he ends with this very positive line, we can do this. So over the weekend, I met some new friends. And, you know, as often happens in the course of introductions, people ask, well, what do you do? When I tell them, well, I'm a broadcaster, I'm a podcaster, um, I'm a speaker of truth, as I understand it, they always ask, well, well, what exactly do you talk about? And sometimes I have my little elevator speech down where I've got a quick, pithy, you know, 30-second or less, you know, reply. But sometimes I want to make sure that they understand that, yeah, I talk about stuff on a daily basis, But there is an underlying goal behind every single episode that I put together. Every one of them. And that is to encourage you to embrace the power of being a clear and independent thinker. And and I'm saying that with the understanding that by being a clear and independent thinker, you may very well disagree with me at times. In fact, I hope you do. Because it not only keeps me honest, you know, when someone says, hey, here's where I disagree, or here's where I th- see things differently. This, this is something you got wrong. I mean, not everybody's that blunt, but, you know, your friends will. You know, the, the people who truly are your friends will tell you things that you may not want to hear. Because they truly care about you. Your enemies will just let you go on in error. No, 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 keep it up, keep it up. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. I want you to understand the power of having control of your mind, your worldview, and not being dependent on somebody else to tell you what it all means. So this touchstone of what is real is a great place to start. And I can't recommend Paul Rosenberg highly enough. This man has a very good grasp on a lot of things. Freemansperspective.com is his website. You can check it out in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Please do it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.